Lord, we are in constant need of grace. We're in constant need of you. Lord, biologically, you've created us, and if it wasn't for you continuing to uphold and sustain life on this planet, we would all perish, every one of us. So we're dependent upon you biologically. We're also dependent upon you spiritually. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and living a perfect life, right according to plan, perfect according to plan. Lord, when you were on the cross, you said it's finished, paid in full. And because of your grace, Lord, you've given us the commandment to follow you. So, Lord, I pray that today as we open your word to see how you dealt with, through Moses, to uh, your people in the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to take those lessons as well, to realize that the same grace that saves us is the same grace that saved them. And, Lord, I thank you for these things. I pray, Father, that you'll open our hearts and minds, quicken our wills, Lord, that we might truly learn how to follow you closer now more than ever before. We need to do this. We need to set the witness because the watching world needs desperately to know that there's a different way. There's a better way. It's your way, Lord. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22. It's 10 verses today. And so we're going to be uh, diving into that. And so it's on page 172 in your pew Bible if you need that number. And as we get started in God's word this morning, I want to point out, or should I say, attack a common misunderstanding of the covenant the Lord made with Israel and how it's affected many in the church. You know, we've kind of gotten used to the idea that the Old Testament is something that the Christians really don't need or even maybe sometimes can stay away from. You know, don't really do a deep dive into the Old Testament because, you know, that's all a a law and those kinds of things. But now don't stay away from it completely. You know, there is some value to it. You know, so the saying goes, the, the common idea. You know, it's good for an occasional moralistic story like David and Goliath. And by the way, when you read a story in the scriptures, who's the hero in every story? God is. David was not that hero in that story. God is that hero. Or, you know, when a follower of Jesus wants to refute Darwinian evolution, what do they do? They go back to the Old Testament, especially Genesis 1 and 2. Or when a Christian is feeling low, what do they do? What do we do? We turn to the Psalms or we even turn to Job because, you know, we can resonate with Job because when we're in the pit, because he was in the pit too. Now, many people believe the New Testament is for Christians who are saved by grace. You know, and some pastors actually preach exclusively from the New Testament. They don't preach at all from the Old Testament because this is for Christians, New Testament. But the Old Testament, according to many, is for legalistic Jews and the 600 plus laws that God told them to obey. And if the laws are not obeyed, guess what happens? The angry God punishes them. But you know, for we as as Christians, since the grace of God covers all of our mistakes, we don't have to worry about keeping the law, do we? See, we put our trust in Jesus and we're good to go. Because after all, You know, we can't earn God's grace. And if there's nothing we can do to earn it, then there's nothing that we can do for God to withdraw his grace from us. It's as simple as that. So there seems to be a line of demarcation between the Old Testament and the New Testament for many. You know, many people see the Old Testament in the form of a question 
where is grace to be found between Genesis and Malachi? And the answer with so many is, there isn't grace there. And regarding the New Testament, the question can be asked, what does God want Christians to do? Does he have a standard for Christians to follow and to obey? And the answer is, for many, no. You know, I've got freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want to do. See, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, informed by Scripture alone. And consequently, this shows up in the lifestyles that many professing Christians lead. And the lifestyles of professing Christians flow from their worldview. Now, way back in 2017, Barna and Summit Ministries, now Summit Ministries is a fantastic, solid Christian ministry, by the way. Now, they teamed up and they conducted a nationwide study to see how many Christians held to a biblical worldview. You know, how many churches are there in our country? How many millions of Christians go to church every Sunday and get involved in the life of the church? You would think that a lot of people have a biblical worldview. Well, they came up with some very discouraging results. According to the study, only 17%, 17, that's one seven Christians possess a biblical worldview. Now, Barna used what he calls six markers which make up a biblical worldview in his opinion. Number one, absolute moral truth exists. Number two, the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles that it teaches. Number three, Satan is a real being, not merely a symbol of evil. Number four, a person cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to be good or by doing good works. Number five, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And you would think that that would be just just the bottom, the rock, solid bedrock. But there are some who actually believe that Jesus sinned. And number six, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. According to this study, 17% of the Christians that they surveyed believe in all six of these. And that was five years ago. How much has changed since then? It's undoubtedly gotten worse. So I begin today with this introduction because this passage that we're going to cover today, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22, is going to smash the notion that there is no grace in the Old Testament. As we know, as we see, as we'll continue to see, there is abundant grace in the Old Testament. And that will lead us into the New Testament as well, where, yes, Christians do have a standard that they must adhere to. The heart of the passage today, as you can tell by the um, the title, <laughs> involves the issue of circumcision, but not the males only circumcision of certain parts of their anatomy. See, everybody gets to be involved in circumcision here when Moses talks about this. See, men and women are to be circumcised. Boys and girls are to be circumcised, according to Moses and really according to Yahweh through Moses. Now, the circumcision, though, was applied to something that everybody has, and that's the heart. In verse 16, Moses tells the people, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And so in Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 15, we're going to discover the motivation for Israel to circumcise their hearts. 
and verses 17 and 22, we will see what a circumcised heart looks like. So before we go into the verses, let's talk a little bit about circumcision in and of itself. Now, I was surprised to know that Israel wasn't the only nation that practiced circumcision on the males. Now, a number of other nations did this, but it wasn't strictly for religious reasons. There were a number of reasons that they that they did this. But what set Israel apart regarding circumcision is that every male eight days old was to be circumcised. And let's not forget the sojourner, the ones who were traveling through and they decided to stick around in Israel as a permanent resident, alien. They were to be circumcised as well, regardless of how old they were. Well, the Lord clearly commanded Abraham and all of his male descendants to become circumcised. And there were a couple of reasons for this. First, circumcision was an entrance requirement for all males to be part of the covenant community. God took this seriously. If a male was not participating in this ritual, if they refused, they were automatically excluded from the nation. Now, females were exempt from circumcision. Why is this? According to the learned guys, it had to do with God's way of helping the males, and therefore everybody in the family, as the males, the heads of the home, would share this truth, that to remember that God was going to raise up many descendants, much seed from Abraham, because the Lord promised Abraham that he would grant him many descendants. So it has an issue of seed. Of course, women don't produce seed, right, ladies? And so therefore, the Lord didn't require Israelite women to get circumcised. But now, you probably are aware that there is such a thing called female circumcision. It's otherwise known as female genital mutilation. And there are some religions, like the Muslims, they practice that. And I'll just leave that right there. But in other words, The God who chose Abraham, this is the point, he was faithful. He promised Abraham so many kids, so many descendants, that they wouldn't even be able to count them all. And that remember also the condition that Abram and Sarai were in when God called them out of the land of Chaldees, the earth of the Chaldees, out of Babylon. What was their condition? They were childless, and they were beyond childbearing age. 75 and 80, or 65 and 75. It took a miracle of God to begin the promise of the Lord to give him and his wife kids. The Lord commanded all of Abraham's male descendants to mark themselves and giving them a sure reminder that God keeps his word. And that's the point. So circumcision was a big deal to the Lord an absolute requirement for his people. Again, if a non-Jewish male wanted to be part of the community, he had to go through the pain to become part of the community. If mom and dad wanted to have their sons to be part of Israel, then eight days after he was born, circumcision was accomplished. And this was a crucial part of being in covenant relationship with Yahweh. He commanded it, and Israel was to carry it out. So let me make another point rather briefly to kind of uh, turn the corner from circumcision. Remember the kind of covenant that Yahweh was making with his people. Remember the, the terminology is called the suzerain vassal treaty. It was a very common way 
of doing um, agreements back then in the day. The Lord was the divine suzerain. He was the king, vastly superior to Israel. And Israel was the inferior vassal. Now, this suzerain-vassal treaty was far more than a cold formal contract drawn up like a business arrangement. The suzerain pledged to protect and provide and even love his vassals. The vassals, in turn, were to be completely loyal to the suzerain. And there was quite often an affectionate relationship, and terminology was used to indicate a family-type atmosphere with them. Many of the suzerain vassal treaties in Moses' day used language that depicted a father-son relationship, for example. And the expectation, even the honor of the vassal, was to be pleasing to his father, his suzerain. And after all, the father protected and provided for the son. That's the idea here with the suzerain vassal treaty. So let's pick up where we left off last time we were in God's word in Deuteronomy 10. And by way of reminder, Moses gave Israel many painful reminders that they had a stubborn heart. A stiff neck was another way of saying it. They were unwilling to submit themselves to the Lord. You know, and Moses gave them a stinging rebuke by telling them in chapter 9, you've been rebellious against the Lord since the day I met you. We're talking decades here. But Moses, Love the people. He interceded for them in the aftermath of the golden calf. And as a result, the Lord was unwilling to destroy them. Moses told the people that the Lord put their stubbornness behind his back and they were to do the same. They were not to beat themselves up. All was forgiven. And now they needed to press on. You know, even as I would, I kind of coined that terminology, fess and press. Once they confessed their sin, it was now gone, and now they needed to press on and do what God would have them to do. They were to prepare themselves to cross over the Jordan River to accomplish the mission that the Lord gave them to accomplish, to cleanse Yahweh's land. That was sacred space to dispossess those people who were such wicked sinners in God's eyes. And with a renewed sense of restored relationship and a recommission to the task, Moses now encourages them in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 15. So let's read that. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens the earth and all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Interesting, isn't it? Now, one thing that the Lord doesn't do for his people through Moses is to leave them in the dark. He tells them exactly what that Israel needs to do in order to please him. In verses 12 and 13, we see five things that the Lord requires of his people. And the central one is love. Love. A lot different than what we're thinking of when it comes to law and and God zapping his people, right? They were to love him. And now their appreciation for Yahweh's care and recommitment of himself to them in the covenant, 
they were to respond to his mercy with wholehearted loyalty to him. Not perfect, but loyal, loyalty. Their fear of him was, in the most excellent words of the commentator Matthew Henry, it was to adore his majesty. This is what it means to fear the Lord, according to him. To adore his majesty, acknowledge his authority, stand in awe of his power, and dread his wrath. What a great description of the fear of the Lord, isn't it? I love that. To continue on, their lifestyle, their walk was to communicate loud and clear that his path was what they were traveling on and they weren't going any old way that they chose. They were on his path, the ancient ways. They were to serve the Lord with all that they had inside of them and they were to loyally keep the commandments of the Lord. As if they needed any reminder, the commandments of the Lord were for their good. For their good. It wasn't that God just kind of arbitrarily threw some rules at them and said, you better obey or else. It was for their good. And this word good carries with it a range of meanings. Words like pleasant. Or words like desirable. Or even happy. Think about obedience and happiness. Does that ever go together in your mind? It does for God. It does for Yahweh. It's that disposition that says, all is right with the world. It's like when you go into a store, and nowadays some of the mask mandates have been lifted, right? Now, people can wear a mask if they want to, no problem. But to mandate that is not a good thing, I think. And so to be able to get into a store and not have to wear a mask, that's a great thing, don't you think? Or when you find a gas station that sells gas for less than $4 a gallon, you know, all is right with the world, right? No, not really. (laughs) How cheap was gas before? So maybe all is right with the world when it comes to gas, maybe a little bit over the top, I'm thinking. But you get the point. And the point is that things go better for us as God's people when we pledge our allegiance and actually live out our allegiance to Yahweh. Now let's look at verses 14 and 15. An amazing pair of verses. Moses reminds the people of who Yahweh is and what he alone chooses to do, particularly in regards to his people. See, the Lord is the absolute creator. He owns it all. Everything seen and unseen is his. And so tell me, what does one do who owns everything there is? Answer, anything he wants. (laughs) It's all his. He has the absolute freedom to do with, quote, his time, his resources, anything he wants to do. Now think about that. Of all the things that God could do, God's chosen to do something concerning his people. And there were two things that Yahweh chose to do. First, of all the things he could have done, he set his heart in love on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He set it there. And that word love is different than the love that, that God tells us to love him. No, this is a, this is a very emotional, very deep love for his people. He set that kind of love in his heart on them. A couple of English translations puts it this way. The Lord had set his heart on them. He set his affection to love them. And so to say that the Lord was fond of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was a vast understatement. 
And that leads to the second thing that the Lord of heaven and earth did with his resources. He chose Abraham's descendants, the very one standing in front of Moses, who Moses was speaking to, chose them, wait for it, chose them above all other nations. Above all other nations. Isn't it amazing? For the sake of the covenant he made with Abraham, the Lord did not forsake the generation who heard Moses. And in saying yes to Abraham's descendants, he said no, at least temporarily, to every other nation. Israel was lifted up above all the other nations because Yahweh wanted it that way. But now that Christ has established the new covenant, paying for it by his blood, all of us who have repented of our sin and embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, what has happened to us? We've been grafted into the blessings of Abraham. And that nation of Israel is lifted above. Guess what God thinks about us? However the Lord feels toward and thinks about those who are true Jews is how the Lord feels toward and thinks about every follower of Jesus. An amazing thing, isn't it? See, God doesn't just tolerate us as his people. He has his affection upon us. So let's move on to verse 16. Therefore, Moses said, because of all that you mean to the Lord and all that the Lord is supposed to mean to you, here's the heart of the matter. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. What does he mean by that? He explains it. Be no longer stubborn. That's what he means when he says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. In essence, Moses tells them, have a flexible neck that's willing to bow to the ways of the Lord. Don't stiffen your neck any longer. And you know, how about you? But when I read this, there's really no words to describe this. See, the Lord is the almighty God. He does whatever he pleases. He could have wiped his people off the face of the planet a long time before Moses was even born. See, the Lord is not answerable to anybody, is he? He doesn't, he doesn't owe anybody any explanation at all. Indeed, all is answerable to him. But what did he do? He chose to put up with Israel. And in this verse, verse 16, we can almost hear the Lord pleading with his people. The Lord wants to demonstrate before the pagans through his people that the ways of the Lord are superior to the ways of the gods of the nations worship. There is a vast difference there. But it begins with Israel in mass having circumcised hearts, having necks that are responsive to the ways of Yahweh to be able to bow low before him. And when the Lord gives a command, the one with the circumcised heart says this, yes, Lord, whatever you desire, this is what I want. Where are you with this? Do you have a circumcised heart? Is your neck unstiff? But that's impossible, people might say. How can people, whether Old Testament or New Testament saints, stop being stubborn? Stop it. Just like that, right? Well, the short but brutally honest answer is this. It depends on incentive, doesn't it? Because we really will do what we want to do. We really will. 
when I was in high school, I could not care less about studying. I did not crack the books hardly at all in my high school career. I was bored to tears, but I had a workaround, literally had a workaround. I only chose things in my senior year, for example, of the things that I wanted to do. And so they had a range of things that I could do. And so let me give you the schedule I had. For the first three hours of the day, I actually had some classmates and we built a house called Building Trades. And so we did everything except pour the basement walls. We we did a good job, I think, because we sold that house in 1976 for about $40,000. And people still live in that house to this day. That's pretty cool. I think we did something right. It didn't fall in. And and in the afternoon, though, after building trades, I took wood shop and metal shop. And then in the spring semester, I had uh, government. And the fall semester, I had psychology. I graduated with a 2.2 GPA. <laughs> yes, not very smart, pretty stupid. But after I became a Christian, everything changed. I had an overwhelming desire to learn his word and share it. But what does that mean? You guessed it, I had to crack the books. <laughs> and I never developed good study habits, never really did at all. And out of fear, I never took the SAT. And my ACT was like a 19, I think. And I'm not sure what, what I am on the range, but I, I hear that's really, really low, 19. But through the grace and mercy of God, I was able then to get into college, and I graduated with honors. And then I went to grad school, and again, I graduated with honors. So what's the difference? What made the difference? Incentive. Because of my relationship with the Lord, I wanted now to study. I wanted now to change. See, God did not supernaturally zap me with good study habits. I'm still a very slow reader and it takes me a long time to put messages together, but I'm willing to do it because I love the Lord, because I want to serve him. Moses told the people, don't be stubborn. Another way to describe stubbornness is to refuse to yield to the Lord's ways. And I would venture to say that there are about as many reasons, excuses, for our refusal to yield to the Lord's ways as there are God's people. Wouldn't you agree? Now, we as drivers who are who are drivers in this room, we all know what it means to yield to the right-of-way to the other driver. Or at least we ought to, right? See, it begins with that little triangle sign on our side that says yield. Now, when we see that someone in the other lane, we are to allow that person to go in front of us. That's the rules of the road, right? That's the way we do things in our country. Other countries, not so much, <laughs> like South Korea. Um, but what happens if one fails to yield? Quite often disaster for both. The one who is not bound to yield and the one who fails to do so, what do they do sometimes? Plow into one another. But how does that happen? Well, it's often because the one who's supposed to yield the right of way fails to check things out. They don't or they refuse to literally turn their neck to check things out and see things have things okay. Well, sort of like that with the Lord and his people. They and we have a habit of failing to yield to the Lord's ways. His ways are the ground rules. 
And when puny humans fail to yield to the one who's unstoppable, guess who loses? Moses spent a lot of words telling Israel to stop losing. In yielding to the Lord, both Israel and the Lord wins. See, Israel was to show their yieldedness to the Lord in knowing who the Lord is and what was in his heart. And the rest of the chapter, we're going to see what a circumcised heart looks like. Let's read verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves a sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Again, sojourner is like a, a resident permanent alien. So who is Israel's suzerain? The only almighty God of the universe. He literally is above all the issues and problems that they and we have. He's above it all. He doesn't have to involve himself with any of this. Isaiah 40, 22 and 23 tells us, it is he, the Lord, Yahweh, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Now we see here that the Lord as the most high God, that's who he is. There is no equal to him. He alone is creator. Everything else is creature. And as great as he is, Yahweh is perfect in his justice toward humans. He meets the needs of people who are so often taken advantage of, like the widow and the orphan and the sojourner or the permanent resident alien. So Moses tells the people, you want to know what a circumcised heart looks like? I'll tell you. It begins with a recognition that the Most High God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all praise and worship and obedience is due to him. The next way for Israel to know that they have a circumcised heart is for God's people to imitate their king, their suzerain. The greatest honor that a vassal can pay to the suzerain is imitate him. He is just in his dealings with people, and he meets the needs of those in the community, especially the widow and the orphan, and again, sojourner. They also were to be humble, not forgetting from whom the Lord delivered them, They were delivered from Egypt, from all the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Because not only were the Israelites slaves, they were also for a time sojourners in Egypt as well. And look what happened to Israel while they were in Egypt. They went from being sojourners to being slaves. And so in essence, Moses tells them, don't be like the Egyptians. Treat the sojourner kindly. Meet their needs. A third way for Israel to know that they have a circumcised heart is found in verses 20 to 22. They are to respond with praise and thanksgiving to Yahweh. But their praise is not merely just words of praise. No, it needs to translate into action and attitudes. Again, as Moses told them in verse 12, fear the Lord. It's a repeat here in verse 20. Serve him, cling to him, pledge allegiance to Yahweh alone as opposed to any other God. Israel, Moses said, in essence, you are to praise Yahweh. He is your deliverer. 
He has taken you from Egypt and protected you and provided for you these 40 plus years. Yahweh is faithful. He has multiplied you in numbers and now get ready to inherit the land because I promised Abraham that he would have that as well. So prepare yourselves and get moving. So what do we make of this magnificent passage? In short, let's do away with the silly and quite frankly dangerous idea that the Old Testament is void of grace and mercy. The Lord set his affections in love on his people. The Lord chose his people and set them above all nations. It is the Lord who provides for the needs of those who are so often taken advantage of. The Lord is faithful to keep his promise. That's just the way it is. And let's not forget that in the midst of Israel committing spiritual adultery against their suzerain, against their king, what did Yahweh do? Yahweh wrote out the two tablets, two copies of the summary statement of the Torah. He wanted to have a relationship with his people, even though they were committing spiritual adultery against him. He even had to write them twice, didn't he? Because Moses broke the tablets. And then when Moses went back up, he had another set of tablets and God wrote them again. So fast forward several hundred years. David, of course, in the Old Testament era, right? A man after God's own heart recalls for all to read the many grace-filled blessings that's found in Psalm 103. Well, who is David? He's an adulterer. He's a murderer, a lousy father. But it was David who penned Psalm 51 as he sought the Lord's forgiveness, as he confessed his sin of adultery and murder. And God forgave him. And between the pages of Genesis 1 and Malachi 4, we find much grace and mercy. So I'm going to ask my sister Donna to, to read for us several verses of Psalm 103 without comment. And we can see just how gracious and merciful God is. The Old Testament God, as it were. But we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God. But now we're going to find God's blessings and grace, even in the Old Testament. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Wonderful verses. This is the character of Yahweh in the Old Testament. In that very body of, of literature, as it were, it says there's no grace. 
really? Our God, who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, is totally awesome. So I think we made a good attempt at smashing the silly notion that grace is lacking in the Old Testament. But now let's briefly turn to the New Testament, and more properly called the New Covenant. See, it begins with the prophecy, of course, where Jeremiah was going to pre- was predicting that he was going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And by definition, all those who have entered into the new covenant called New Covenant New Testament Christians, they have the Torah of God written on their hearts. That's what God says he was going to do as part of the new covenant. The Spirit of God lives within them, lives within us, and their sins, our sins, are forgiven forever. So let me ask an obvious question. What does it mean for the Torah, the law of God, to be written on our hearts? In short, it's metaphoric, isn't it? I mean, God doesn't take a little stylus and put it on our blood pumping mouth. No, this is a metaphor. If something is on our heart, it's the most important thing, most valuable thing to us. And so if the law of God is the most valuable thing to us as believers, as followers of Christ, because we're new covenant Christians, then the obvious question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with the law of God if it's the most valuable thing to us? Answer, obey it. Obey it because we want to obey it. It's the most precious thing to us. But we do it by the power of the Spirit who lives within us. See, Christians don't obey the law of the Lord in order to have the law of the Lord written on their hearts, right? A lot of people think, well, you got to keep the Ten Commandments in order to become saved. But that's wrong answer. No, he saves us by his grace first, and then he writes the law of God upon our hearts. So indeed, we do have a standard that we are to follow. But never forget the order. Grace first, then obedience. God tells us who we are. First, we're his saints, we're his set-apart people. And then he tells us, as his saints, to live out his ways. And he expects us to live out his ways. God didn't give a pass to people and say, well, okay, you sinned, you've blown it, so that's okay, though, no problem. God doesn't do that at all. I mentioned earlier in the message about those who are true Jews. Scripture is clear on this. Just because a person is a direct descendant of Abraham does not mean that he or she is, in our way of putting things, saved. In making his case that everybody, whether Jew or Gentile, needs salvation found in Christ alone, Paul says this about the important matter called circumcision. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, we find this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. What have we just been talking about here in Deuteronomy? Circumcision is a matter of the heart, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, the issue really is all about the circumcision of the heart, not just of the circumcision of, of the foreskin on the male body part. Because God is after our heart. And after all, he has given us his heart, hasn't he? He has set his affection on his people. The least we can do is to love him in return. How did he define love? Keep my commandments. 
And finally, remember what I said about what amounts to a family-type relationship between the suzerain and the vassal. The greatest honor for the vassal is to be pleasing to the suzerain. It's the same way, and even more so now, as we as followers of Christ. Paul gave the Ephesian Christians an incredible, inspired description of what the Lord has done in their lives in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He has taken us from the kingdom of darkness. And of course, that's in Colossians as well. But the apostle did not finish his letter at the end of chapter three, talking about who we are. No, he went on, he finished the rest of it. And we have six chapters. And these last three chapters are how we as Christians are to live our lives. He tells us who we are in the first three chapters. And he tells us how to live in the second three chapters. So regardless of whether a person was an Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint, it always was and always is grace first. He changes our identity. He tells us who we are. And then the Lord tells us how to live. So it always has happened. So it always will. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, the 6, verse 9, Paul does that. Verse after verse tells the Christian, now that you are saved, live this way. But let me briefly point something out that we overlook, I think, if we get a hold of it, the ramifications are astounding. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to these words. Therefore, be imitators, finish it, of God. Imitators of God. Think about that. As beloved children. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, we are to imitate God. Imitate in the original language is where we get our word mimic from. Now, we all know what a mimic is, don't we? Anybody's ever played Simon Says know what a mimic is. Simon Says, put your hands on your head. We do it. We mimic the person who's leading. And if we want to win the game, we mimic the leader. Paul says we are to mimic God in verse 1. But how can one mimic one who is invisible, who is spirit? That's where verse 2 comes in. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering sacrifice to God. Christ, who is God incarnate, shows us how to successfully play Simon says, or more appropriately, Jesus says. See, we imitate God by obeying Jesus. It's as simple and as profound as all that. And the highest honor for us to bestow upon our king is to imitate him because we love him. And why do we love him? First John 4.19 says this, we love him because he first loved us. He made the first move. In our lives as Christians, we do have standards. So let's do away with the silly notion that I'm saved and by grace I can now do whatever I want to do. Though the Christian life is one of obedience to the Lord out of our love for him, we can boil it down to what I believe is three crucial questions in this order. If we can pursue these questions, we will be well on our way to living a life that pleases him. And the first question is this. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? See, Paul asked that question the moment Jesus knocked him to the ground on the day that they met. And what an unforgettable first meeting that would be. Would you agree? Question two, what will you have me do? 
See, Paul also asked that question. Soon after, he asked the first question. Who are you, Lord? What are we having to do? In question three, when Peter was hurting and he was desperate because he denied the Lord on the night that Jesus was crucified, how he needed Jesus to come and restore him. You ever feel like that? Deny the Lord. But what does Jesus do? He comes to us. He restores us. What did the Lord do when he came to Peter? He asked him a question. Three times. Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then what did Jesus say? If you love me, do this. If you love me, do this. Don't just tell me how you feel about me. If you love me, do this. And Peter, for the rest of his days, from the day of Pentecost on, he was proving to the Lord, answering the question, yes, Lord, I love you. And I'm willing to spend my life showing you that I do. And so I'm going to leave us to ponder these questions for just a moment. You know, we're pretty much beyond time like we always are. We talk about Eutychus today falling out the window because Paul preached so long. But anyway, <laughs> but let's take a moment and reflect on these three questions. And may the Lord do a work in all of our lives as we answer these, as we have these burned into our hearts and burned into our minds. So let's just take a moment, reflect on them. Lord, you gave us the definition of eternal life, and that is to know you. And we want to spend the rest of our days as followers of yours, asking the question, who are you, Lord? Who are you? We want to know you. Not just know facts about you as if we were reading about a historical figure. And Lord, you definitely were a historical figure. You walked on this earth with two human feet and you heal with two human hands and you laid yourself out on the cross and you died as a human but you were God in the flesh total God total man so who are you Lord we want to know not just know about you we want to know you and Lord We read words. You are the king, and you are the king of kings. And so, Lord, with bowed heads, with unstiffed necks, with bowed knees, we say, Lord, what will you have us do? What will you have me do? It's all important that we obey you. Lord Jesus, you said that we will have fullness of joy if we do this. You told us that 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 if we obey your commandments, we will abide in your love. Just as you, Lord Jesus, obey the Father's commands and abide in his love. Lord, so much is dependent upon our obedience. But our obedience as, as of a, um, a right attitude. Lord, we want to obey because we love you. Because you love us first. And then, Lord, too, we want to be always keeping in the back of our mind, even the forefront of our mind at times. Lord, do we love you? Because you asked Peter that question. And Lord, I think all of us at times are like Peter. We've denied you when the going gets tough. We've been lazy when we shouldn't have. We've, and fill in the blank. Lord, we don't have to go through the litany. 
because, Lord, you know us all together. So, Lord, I pray that tonight, today, all throughout our days, that we will be keeping at the forefront of our minds that we love you. And if we love you, Lord, then we will do what you ask. And because we love you, because you love us first. So now, Lord, I pray that you'll help us as we turn our attention now to uh, our closing song and our giving. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to, to do these things as an act of obedience, as an act of worship, because we love you. Again, because you love us first. In your name we pray.